0: Welcome to our third uh, week of the series. The series theme is extraordinary everyday purpose, and our talk topic today is the meaning of work. Our presenter is Mike Seelinger. Uh, he is a professor at the University of Notre Dame, a true triple domer. He earned his PhD in mechanical engineering at Notre Dame. Uh, during his time on the faculty, he has been awarded the College of Engineering Outstanding Teaching Award, the Reverend Edmund P. Joyce CSC Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching, and the Department of Aerospace and Mechanical Engineering Teacher of the Year Award, twice. In the classroom, he's well known for what students refer to as story time with Professor Seelinger. And uh, he has been known to have certain costumed characters, bananas, um, gorillas, bacon, the like, appearing in his classes, uh, running through, causing you know mayhem different forms uh, he, he has a passion an incredible passion for what he does um, and he I think it's will will be an excellent perspective on this topic uh, the meaning of work so uh, without further ado I uh, introduce Mike sealinger
1: Well, thanks everyone for coming. This is a, kind of a cool venue for me to be able to speak at. Uh, normally, I don't get to drink beer when I'm teaching class and so forth, but that might be kind of a nice innovation. So, uh, you already heard I'm an engineer. So, could I? I know there are some engineers here, some former students and so forth. Can I see a show of hands real quick? How many engineers we have? We have a few here. Okay, I promise I'm not going to tell any corny engineering jokes. But I'm just saying this because, since you know I'm an engineer, you cannot expect me to be funny. That's just—we got that out there. And you know, if the stories aren't good, you know, I—you I, know—have a qualification here. In any case, I like telling stories. Um, so talking to Ryan earlier, as one of my former students, and Michael, that I would often start class with a story to try to teach a life lesson. Hopefully, some of those stories are kind of fun. So I'd like to kind of weave through this talk on the meaning of work and then, you know, kind of cap it all together but through a series of stories and hopefully try not just to tell a story for the fun of it, but so that you can remember some sort of life lesson. And given the venue, you might think of some other much more famous person than I am who used to like to do the same thing and was much better at it. In fact, did it a few thousand years ago. So first a story, when I was a freshman, which was a long time ago, back in the last millennium, that's what I like to tell my students. When I was a student in the last millennium and so on, so I was a freshman at Notre Dame in 1990, and for those of you who've gone to school at Notre Dame, you usually have to take a freshman seminar, and I had an absolutely fabulous freshman seminar teacher. I don't remember her name, I tried to look it up several times, and couldn't find it. Uh, She wasn't a usual faculty. She was a grad student working on a PhD. The topic was poverty, racism, and discrimination. It was a fantastic class, and I learned a lot from it. And uh, the teacher apparently liked the way I wrote and some of the things I said, and we'd become kind of friends. I remember one day, very distinctly, Hesbrook Library, wherever Gabe is, I can tell a library story, and she asked me, was there early for class, and so we we're starting to talk, and she says, so Mike, what are you majoring in? And of course, I'm all excited, you know, I'm a freshman, right? Mechanical engineering. And she just said, like, like, boom, like, oh, what a waste. And I, I mean, I was blown away. I was like, oh, okay, you just turned me off to your class, what a jerk, that, that was my thought process, like. How could you say that to me? Now, why did she say that? So, just again, I want to make it very clear. She was a fantastic professor, a great teacher. Um, She taught me a lot about these very, very important life issues, and she herself was living the ideals that she was trying to instill in us as students, which I highly respected. And I think she felt I could do more good, kind of following her path, than just doing something like mechanical engineering. So I'm just going to leave this story out there and kind of come back to it at the end, and I'm going to let you decide based on what I'm talking about today if you think it was a waste or not, or if you think that majoring in mechanical engineering, or whatever major it is that you've decided to major in, or whatever profession you've decided to pursue, is that a waste because you're not doing say direct service to the poor not finding meaning in that so leave that out there it's a big question we kind of move on the bottom line is we all spend an enormous portion of our lives working i mean if you're if you're a notre dame alum i mean if you bump into someone and first of all i know there are quite a few here highly recommend you wear notre dame gear when you travel someone will always come up to you and talk to you I was stuck in an, in an airport in West Palm Beach a week ago and had about an hour-long conversation with a Georgia grad about the upcoming football game so uh, just because I was wearing my Notre Dame jersey anyway uh, why, why am I bringing why am I bringing this up okay is that we're all gonna spend a huge portion of our life working and if you're a Notre Dame grad the first thing they ask is what year what dorm? What major? And then, well, what do you do for a living? That's just a common thing. Are you married? Do you have kids? These kinds of questions. It's a, it's something we all share. We all work. And, and when I mean work, I don't mean just I have a job, okay? I mean we all work. You know, for those of you who think that a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad is not more work, try it for a day. My guess is that it's probably harder than what you do during a normal day, okay? So, that's, I consider that also to be work. That's something that I'm looking at. Now, something I've noticed, and I, I, you know, I'm now old enough that I have to say things like, "In your generation versus my generation, not that my generation is better. We have our own problems." Is that a lot of students are really worried about, "Will I be fulfilled in my work and my job? Is this a good job for me? Is this a good profession?" You know, they're really nervous about, is this a good job? I I still remember, this is about 10, 15 years ago, maybe, and I had this very top student come into my office, a senior graduate, his name was Matt, and he was completely distraught. I'm like, Matt, what's up? He's like, oh, professor, I don't know what to do. I'm like, what's the problem? He's like, I've got three job offers, and I don't know which to take. And uh, like, so I, I had him list the job offers, and they were all, like, amazing jobs. I remember one was Boeing in St. Louis, and I don't remember the other two, but they were all at, you know, really big, good companies. He had a reason to live in each three city, and he was just completely distraught. He didn't know what to do. And, and I think, in part, it was because he didn't really understand the meaning of the work. I said, well, just pick one. Who cares? You know, there, you have three right choices, no, no wrong choices. Just pick one if you don't like it. Call that other company, you can move to it. And I think part of the reason is that there's a real fear that you won't be happy in what you're doing. You won't find meaning in your life. You won't find meaning in your work. And what I hope to do is to try to show you how to do that and maybe change your perspective on that a little bit as we go through the talk. So I teach in the first year engineering program at Notre Dame part of that program is we try to help the first-year students discern which engineering major, if any, is is the best major for that student. Uh, and, and this kind of discernment has taken many forms over the years. It's, it's kind of gotten more heavy in the last couple of years. I know some of you students have done that. Uh, but one of the things that the students tend to do is they meet with their professors. And I... One of the things I love about my job is I get to meet with a lot of students and try to help them make important life decisions. I find that particularly fulfilling. But I also read a lot of uh, when they have now have to write a discernment paper where they talk about their process, and so you read a lot about well, I want to major in blank. I want to major in mechanical engineering, and do biomedical because I want to help people, or I want to go into electrical engineering because I want to do green energy and help the earth or whatever it may be I mean it's it's actually very uplifting to see these uh, desires of serving you know having more meaning in their profession than just I want to earn money so I can do X or support a family or whatever it happens to be but let me tell you a story about a girl and since the most anonymous Notre Dame female name is Katie we'll just use Katie as her name not that you know her uh, but so Katie came to me one day, and we were sitting down talking, and I asked her, well, what do you want to do? You know, what major are you thinking? She's like, well, I'm not really sure. And, you, know, you go through the whole thing. What are you good at, and so on and so forth. And, and she said, well, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to do engineering for third world countries. I said, okay, well, that's pretty cool. That's a great idea. It's like, well, why? And she said, well, because when I was in high school, kind of the happiest time of my life was when I went and did a service project. And I don't, I don't remember which country it was she did a service project in. I think it was Haiti, but I, I can't remember. But just some place in the world that really needed help at the time. And she says, I was really happy doing that. So I was thinking that I somehow could combine my talents and this math and science type stuff with third world engineering stuff. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. There's, Some professors at Notre Dame would do that, in fact. But there's probably about 20 people in the entire world that can support themselves doing that. You know, there's not a huge market for that. Most engineers are not going to be able to do that. It's kind of like, that's more exclusive than saying, my career plan is to be an NBA basketball player, because there's more than 20 people a year who get drafted in the NBA, all right? So it's, it's, that's actually kind of a challenging goal. And what I tried to explain to Katie is that I, I think she's fundamentally flawed in her view that to find meaning in her work, her work has to be like directly serving those most in need. And don't get me wrong; that's a very beautiful thing for those who are called to do that missionary work or do like. I have one of my classmates in my dorm is the head of the center for the homeless here in town. fantastic guy, great dynamic speaker, and you know, he's raising his family, supporting that, doing a fantastic thing. But most of us are not called to that. Most of us are called to do very ordinary type jobs, okay? And how do we find meaning in that? That's kind of what I want to get at. So let's uh, talk about some people that maybe are unhappy in their work and maybe not understanding why. So just pick a name Bubba, just came to mind, Bubba. You probably know a Bubba, everyone seems to know a Bubba. You know, my, my friend Bubba is about 6'5 and weighs about 275 pounds. He was an offensive lineman at Notre Dame. That was his nickname, Bubba. Okay, so I'm not thinking of him. He's actually happy in his work. But there's a lot of people out there who, you know, they, they think, oh, I'm going to be happy doing X. They go out and start doing X and two years later, like, this is miserable. I, you know, I think I need to do something that's going to help people. And a lot, for those of you who are teachers, don't get me wrong, I love teaching. But there's a lot of people who say, I think teaching would be really fulfilling. And they go and teach for two years, and it eats them alive. And they're like, the last thing I want to do is, keep... see, the teachers are laughing. They understand how tough of a profession it is, okay? Highly respect. Those of you who teach in high school and primary and so on, you have a much tougher job than my job as a college professor. So just a lot of respect out there for you. And then they, you know, they kind of go to, maybe I should do a not-for-profit or something. I think a lot of those people are unhappy, not because of the nature of their work they're doing, is that they don't know how to be happy in their work. They don't know how to find meaning in what they're doing. You know, so for instance, think of a profession that's directly serving people. Medical profession, doctors, okay. I know a lot of doctors who hate what they do. I know a lot of doctors who are kind of jerks. You know, they're helping people all day long, but they don't really seem to care about people. In other words, it's not so much the profession itself. It's more the way we carry out our profession where we're gonna find fulfillment and meaning in our work. And that's kind of what, the direction I wanna go in. So I'm gonna, gonna take a little bit of a divergence here and start telling some stories and then kind of try to tie that back in. So I was recently reading a book, and uh, there was a naval surgeon in the book and and discussing some of his observation about uh, medical things in the Navy. My dad was in the Navy, so I'm a little bit fascinated by this kind of stuff. Not that I know anything about medical things, but this uh, surgeon was making the observation that as people who are incredibly seasick, which is very common, right, when you get on the water, or very seasick, the moment that their ship, and this is a surgeon in the 1800s, the moment that their ship enters battle, the seasickness immediately vanishes. You know, and I don't know if you've ever been, anybody here been seasick before on a boat or anything like that, we have a few people there. My sisters just get, they look at a boat, they get seasick. Okay, so it kind of my dad was in the Navy he gets seasick so it kind of wasn't a good choice on his part but what, what can you do yeah, that's why he went into submarines you know he was actually shocked when he went to the naval Academy he found out he's going to have to be on boats for five years anyway um, so but as soon as they he was, he was like this is a weird thing they're, they're sick as a dog for days on end and the boat goes into battle and not a single one of them is seasick anymore So why is that? And his speculation was, well, they don't really have time to think about how they feel. When you're seasick on a boat, all you can think about is, oh, I feel sick, this is terrible, I feel sick, you know, and there's nothing I can do about it. I have a friend right now, a very close friend who, his very first day of vacation, he stepped on a glass and has a deep cut in his foot, and he can't do anything but sit there and think about how miserable he is, right? So when we're sick, We often feel worse because all we're doing is thinking about how sick I feel. And we're focused really on ourselves. These sailors who in battle all of a sudden realize, hey, my life depends upon me doing my job. And my, you know, shipmates' lives depend upon me doing my job. I don't have time to think about how I feel right now. They're not thinking about themselves as seasickness goes away and they're focused on what they're supposed to be doing. Generally, they're happier. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. Now next I want to see a show of hands here. How many, how many parents do we have here? Okay, okay so we got, we got some parents here. And I, Andrew was floating around. Andrew, where are you? Are you out there? Okay, I'm going to pick on Andrew because Andrew and I are good friends. And Andrew's a young father. His son is about to celebrate his first birthday, if I'm not mistaken. 11 months old, he we was just mentioning. It's not that I knew that from forever. he just mentioned it was coming up. So, I know we're far way away, Andrew, but this way we can kind of span the room with voices. When, when you're a young parent, especially as a guy, you know, you bring your baby home, your life radically changes. Let's go some, through some things. You know, all of a sudden, you don't get to sleep through the night. You know, and generally, your baby's waking up in the middle of the night, because you know, in this case, he's hungry, and you probably don't have the tools necessary to allay that hunger. But you got to get up anyways. Right? That's just part of the deal. Okay, and, and you know, I'm an engineer, so I think of this as an input-output relationship. Okay. So what has changed? Okay. Don't sleep as much anymore. My entire life revolves around the baby's schedules and whims can't go out with friends anymore. No, i got to put the baby to bed. And I'm not saying this in a bad way. I think having children's fantastic. fantastic, right? but let's just use this as an example. So what else? What is the, I mean, you basically radically change your life and more or less order everything you're doing around your child and in your spouse and what do you get out of it? Now when your baby is very young, bring your infant home, maybe his eyes aren't even open yet. He doesn't even really smile yet. So, as far as I can tell, I'm not a father, but as far as I can tell, they cry, you know, like peacefully sit there and so forth. They poop, you know, diapers. And, you know, there's, in other words, there's not a lot of that, you know, I'm not making the baby smile. Everyone likes making a baby smile. It's really fun when you make the baby smile. You don't even get that. But, Andrew were you happy in your first few weeks of being a father and all these radical changes all the other parents first baby comes home you happy I mean the young parents I've met it's like one of the happiest times in their entire lives it's an amazing time you know why is that so let me tell you a story about my mom and I get to make fun of myself which I like to do so I have an older sister as I already mentioned my dad's in the Navy My sister and I were both born when my dad was out at sea on cruises and submarines. And uh, I was a, I may have been the world's worst baby. I was a terrible baby. I'm 100% lactose intolerant from birth. They didn't catch it for the first year. So on top of being colicky and all the other problems you have, I was allergic to eggs, I was allergic to red dye, I was allergic to all kinds of things. And I, I had milk problems which they didn't catch for a year. So I basically didn't sleep for more than an hour at a time. That's what my mom tells me. Uh, my, My mom's youngest sister says the only time she has ever heard my mom swear is when I was a baby and, like, it was the fifth time I woke her up in the middle of the night. And, of course, my aunt thought it was the funniest thing in the world because, you know, I still have to be sent to the bathroom if I use words like poop in front of my mom. And she's very strict on language. Anyway, she tells a story that when I was, I don't know, a few months old, and my older sister's a year and a half older than me, so she's about two, that one night my dad was still at sea. She was absolutely exhausted, just had been up all night with the kids again. And she was sitting on the side of the bed, and she said, you know, I realized for the first time in my life I was happy with myself. And I had a, you know, I mean, if you, from, a, from a point of view of just exhaustion, absolutely exhausted, but from the point of view of happiness and contentment in life, the happiest in her life. And you kind of say, well, why is that? And what can we learn from this about our work? And this is just, this is not necessarily just for work. This is something you can take into everything you do is that because she was doing what she was supposed to be doing. She was giving herself 100% to her kids, loving them, giving everything. And she was, that was her profession. She's a mom. That's what she was doing. She wasn't worried about, am I getting my sleep and this and this and me and me? She was worried about her kids, about the people she loved. She was serving. And what, what she found is that through that, she was as happy as she can be. So I'm going to try to tie this naval surgeon story in, this idea of, of my mom the service, is that we are happier when we serve. That's what we're meant to do. I once told this story about this analogy with infants, and this priest friend of mine said to me, yeah, I think that's God's programming to tell us that's what we're supposed to do when you're a parent, is that you're supposed to give and love. You're happier when you do that. The problem is... I think a lot of people want to be fulfilled in life and they're looking for fulfillment in their work and they're looking for fulfillment from the intrinsic nature of the work but they have the wrong attitude with which they're doing the work they're not doing it as an idea of I'm here to serve they're doing it as I'm supposed to be getting something out of this this is supposed to be filling me what am I trying to do so it's not a it's, it's like a really small distinction, but it's incredibly important from the point of view of how you do your work. Now, I, I hate kind of talking about myself from a positive point of view. I like making fun of myself. But as, like, Michael read out here, I've won a number of teaching awards. I'm very grateful for those. I mean, I, I don't, but I have never once tried to teach with the idea of, oh, if I do this, maybe I'll be given a teaching award. You know, or, or I'll get some kind of recognition for this. You know, why do you do what you do? Because it's the right thing to do, because you love the people you're teaching, the people you work with. And as teachers, you know, those teachers out there know that when you do it that way, the teacher, the, the students really get a lot out of it, and they actually respect and like you a lot more than if you're just doing it, I don't know, just somehow to get fulfillment out of it. The key thing here, the key point to take away, and something I really want you to discuss When we get to that point is how can i change the way i look at my work to see my work as service you might say well how can you serve as i don't know engineer so let me tell you a story about another student another female engineering student notre dame and legitimately this time her name is katie she goes by kate so well distinction this is kate and i and then i'll tie back the story to the one i referred to as katie so Kate graduated a couple years ago, and uh, we were having lunch her senior year, spring of her senior year, and I asked her, you know, typical questions, so what are you doing next, Kate? One of our top students, so I'm sure she had many job offers, and she looked at me a little bit funny, and then she says, well, I, I, I accepted a job at Whirlpool. You know, oh great, congratulations. That's, that's fantastic. I hear it's a good company to work for. And she kind of looked at me funny. I'm like, well, what? She's like, well, most people make fun of me when I say this. I'm like, well, why is that? like, well, you know, I'm kind of an idealistic person. They thought I would be doing some sort of, I don't know, service type thing or a big thing. And they my friends kind of make fun of me. That's not really sexy to work on kitchen appliances. So what is it you're going to work on? Like, I don't know, dishwashers? Is that what you're doing, this really talented, young engineering student at Notre Dame? And like, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I said, well. Why are you doing it? Tell me. And she gave me one of the most profound answers I've ever heard. You know, so I, I'm sure she'd be embarrassed if she heard me telling a story, which I've told many times. But she um, she said to me, "Well, growing up, a lot of my family life at home revolved around the kitchen. You know, well, like, like to bake with my mom and cook things, and we'd all hang out in the kitchen and so on. So." Many of my fondest memories from growing up are from the kitchen. So I think it'd be really cool for me to use my talents and time to try to make better kitchen appliances. In a small way, I'm helping families. I'm helping people to have an experience like me and hopefully they have a better dishwasher or maybe more energy efficient or I don't know, more conducive to whatever it is that they're trying to do. Now. I'm willing to bet that most people at Whirlpool don't have her attitude. But that's precisely the attitude I think you should look for in your work. That practically any job can be done as a means of service. It's often an attitude change. How am I serving in what I'm doing? You know, even if it's, well, I'm just working for a car company and I'm I'm building this part. You know, or I'm, you know, not a lot of us are lucky enough to be like, stay at home. Parents where it's very clear you're pretty much serving all day long You know often don't even have time to go to the bathroom by yourself or something like this You know what we we can see in our work this attitude of service And when we do it that way without worrying about ourselves, we're like that sailor Who forgot about the fact that he was seasick and is focused on the job and is happier and going back to Katie who wanted to do engineering for the third world countries I asked her, well, why were you happiest in that week? She she didn't know. I I don't know if I'm right or not. I'm pretty sure I am. It's because she was serving. She wasn't worried about herself. And she found great joy in helping the people she was serving and the people on the trip with her. And if you bring that attitude to any job you do, you're going to find more fulfillment than if you don't. And it doesn't cost a lot. It's not like you have to radically change things. It's really more an outlook. Focusing on others, forgetting about yourself. All right. So, kind of, kind of moving on here. This idea, big theme is service. Seeing your work as service. How many of you have read the Screw Tape Letters by Sueys Lewis? Okay, a lot of people. So, very, very quickly, uh, Screw Tape Letters is there's this older demon, uh, Screw Tape, who is writing letters back and forth with a younger demon, Wormwood. And Wormwood has been assigned to a patient to corrupt the patient. And Screwtape is giving him advice. It's a a fascinating little back and forth. It's a great, great book. Anyway, at one point, Wormwood writes to Uncle Screwtape, you know, the senior demon, I'm really concerned about my patient. He started donating to this international charity. You know, so he's doing good stuff. This is terrible. I thought we had him. And so Screwtape asks him, well, can you give me more details? Has he is he still treating his mother poorly? Is he self-righteous about the fact that he's helping in this international service organization? Does he still treat the people he works with with disdain? And Wormwood, of course, answers yes. And Screwtape says, well, no, this is actually good for us because he thinks he's doing a good thing. And in fact, he's doing the exact opposite. He's not really serving, you know, because service starts with those closest to us. So I think a really great way to look at service in your work isn't so much what is the end product of my work, but starting with how do I serve the people I work with? You might say to yourself, well, gee, I work with this guy who's a jerk, or "Or I work with this person who's very self-centered. It's all about her as opposed to me and so on. Ask yourselves, well, how do I serve that person? How do I, how do I, I mean, I'm not saying you do their work for them. You have to do your job, right? But we can do our work in a way that makes it easy for the next person to do. Now, have you ever been handed a piece of work that's done really well? And it's like the person went beyond the call of duty and it's like all set up for you to do, that's great. You know, it's, it's an excellent thing. You know, so I think it's really important to have this attitude if you really want to do your work as service, that it doesn't just, it's not an attitude of the big picture service, it starts with the people with whom you work with, day in and day out. How can I be a service to them? How can I live and work in a way that makes working with me more pleasant for them? How can I do my job very well and help others to do their job very well by being a better professional in whatever way it happens to be? Your work's place satisfaction will go up enormously by this. In fact, this is a bit of an unrelated story, but kind of works in the same attitude. I remember uh, my dad used to like to listen to this uh, uh, priest who recorded tapes and so forth talks. He was a very good preacher. John Powell, I think his name was. And he tells a story. He's giving marriage counseling to this woman, and she's like, I just want to divorce my husband, and I hate him, and he's a jerk, and this and that. And he just detected a lot of venom there. So he said, well, you know, you really want to get him. You don't want to just divorce him, right? She's like, yeah, yeah, I really want to make him hurt. Okay. Look, do this. For the next two months, do absolutely everything he likes. You know, just absolutely, like, pander to every whim he has. Every single little thing. Put the toilet paper in the right way. Cook his favorite meals. I don't know. Whatever it, what are all the things that she was complaining about? And then, of course, I think you know where this is going. Two months later, he meets with her. He said, so did you do it? Did you leave him at the end so that he'd be totally crushed, think you're madly in love with him, and all of a sudden that in the end, like, you leave him out of nothing, and be completely hurt? She's like, no, he started treating me better, and, and I'm, we're still in love. You know? I'm like, oh, okay. I wonder how that happened. You know? So when we start treating our fellow workers that way with this act of service, they tend to will reciprocate and have great respect for us in the way we do it, and we'll be happier in what we do. Which brings us to another kind of side point I'd like to make about work. I know I meet with a lot of people who talk about, gee, I don't know if I like my work, and so on. You know, oftentimes we can think of our dream job, and our dream job is not necessarily all it's cracked up to be. Like, I I know someone I used to work with, And he was working at a, I wouldn't call it a dream job, but a much better kind of job than his previous job. But he kind of did not like the people he worked with um, and felt kind of lonely there. And so he actually went back to his former company, which did work he didn't find as interesting, but he loved the people he worked with. It was far more fun to work in something with these people he enjoyed being with. And I I think that's also something to consider as you're looking for new jobs or professions and so forth. All right. All right. Now, let's, moving on here, I wanna talk about, and I don't wanna take up too much time. You know, we professors can go on and on and on and on and on, so I, I, you know, we're not coming quite to the end here, there's still a lot left, don't get me wrong, but I don't wanna, we won't be able to get through our discussion questions if I don't keep moving here, all right. So, I'm part of a organization in the Catholic Church called Opus Dei, I'm happy to talk more about it, but the reason I bring that up is Opus Dei means work of God. Our founder, St. Jose Maria, kind of saw this idea, and it was a very old idea in the church and a very normal idea, something we find very natural now, that all the pathways on the earth, that lay people with very ordinary jobs, whether it be they're a college professor or a high school teacher or manual laborer or stay-at-home parent or whatever, are called to be saints, called to be people who love God with their whole heart and soul, it's called to be very holy. And they can find God in and through their daily work. And so he had three big points to try to help people to do this. And so I want to hit those points before kind of wrapping everything up and concluding together. The three big points are, is that we can become holy. The word he used is sanctify. You know, in other words, sanctify means to become holy, to become someone who loves God, is very close to God. We can sanctify our profession. We can become holy through our profession and we can help others come closer to god and become holy through our profession as well so let's talk about those three points a little bit and again i like stories so I'll start with the story so when i was young i remember meeting this priest after mass one day with my parents and they introduced me you know i can't remember the priest's name you know um and he, what's your name my name is mike Oh, Michael. He goes. That's a very interesting name. Of course, I'm like, oh wow, it is. I didn't know that. Okay, (laughs) cool. Um, He says, did you know your name is a question? I'm like, my name is a question? What do you mean? And I, I said, you know, and I could, I could put Michael on the spot. And I'm sure there are other Michael's here. If you know what your name means, it's a question. And at least the way he put it is, it's the question of who is like God that's the you know I've heard other people say like he who is like God but I said no it's a question who is like God and then he pointed at me and says and you you have to answer that question with your life you have to be like God that's what your name means and I was like whoa oh man I wonder if my parents knew that when they named me that right and of course that was a marvel. I mean, I, I knew that priest for like two minutes of my life, and I still remember that. And He was very good at making that great impact with that one little thing that he did there. So, you know, a side note, you can have a huge impact on people's lives with little things like this sometimes. Why am I telling you this? Because this first point of St. Jose Maria of raising our profession to something that's pleasing to God, is basically the same question I just brought up about my name. And that is, Think of your profession, whatever it happens to be. I'm a college professor. Now, what does it look like for a college professor to be a saint? You know, it's like a, and let's just say there have been many college professors, like, say, Thomas Aquinas and so forth, who have been canonized as saints, but what would it look for, for a, a modern-day, ordinary layperson in whatever profession I work in to be a saint? If I were to die, could they canonize me? And we have to answer that with our life. We speculate about that, think about how is it that I could do my work and live my profession in a way that's pleasing to God, and our answer to that is just like this priest said to me in answering the question, "Who is like God with your life?" You have to answer that with your life. Think about your profession, and what does it mean for that person to do that profession? Obviously, it means that to do it with you know ethically, to do it well, and so on. But there's much more to that. Okay, I'm not gonna. Belabor labor that point a little bit that's something for you to kind of think about and discuss the next one is a little bit longer and that is how do we become holy through our profession through our day-to-day exercise of that so kind of pause for a second make an analogy here you know many people at some point in their lives i've many times happened to me say you know geez i really need to get in shape i need to lose some weight or whatever i need to start exercising and so you might you might pick something I was just with my sisters, and they were comparing their exercise strategies. One's doing Pilates, and I can't remember what the other one's doing, and so on. Or you might say, I'm gonna, I am going gonna—I like cycling, I like biking, I'm gonna take up biking, or I don't know, cross-training, or whatever it is. Or if you're like Michael, you do a run with weightlifting at the middle of the run, with, sponsored by Arnold Schwarzenegger, if I remember correctly, yeah, okay. So there's different ways of doing this. But all of these ways of getting in shape involve changing your behavior building up strength building up endurance you know kind of the the venue through which we get our our body in a better condition is somewhat immaterial there are different ways of doing it you might say one is better or whatever it doesn't really matter but the point is is they all involve sweat and pain and suffering in some small way so if we want to grow closer to god and even if we want to grow in our profession and be better professionals do our work in a way that's pleasing to God, we need a method through which to do that. That's our job. We spend a lot of time doing that. So, for instance, maybe I identify, gee, I wonder what I need to grow in. Maybe I need to grow in patience. I need to grow in fortitude. If you were a college student, I would certainly say you need to grow in avoiding procrastination, which is generally sloth or laziness. I need to avoid that, right? I need to be industrious with my time, and so on. I mean, don't get me wrong, college students are not the only ones who are lazy. We professors tend to procrastinate too, so I'm sure everyone can feel that. So our workplace has ample opportunities for us to do, you know, the difficult things. For example, I have a friend who works in a financial industry. And, and I know, and I probably would have the same difficulty, his, his job involves in part calling people and so on and that's the least favorite part of his job you know and i know that like when he does that and puts it off and puts it off and puts it off it's all day long he's thinking about this is oh, i just don't feel like making this call and so on and it's you know, he's not working well all day because he's thinking he's got to do this thing he doesn't enjoy and he says but the good days are when i start out and say you know i'm just going to do this hard thing first do it right away i get it done and then the rest of the day goes better because i did the hard work first that's you know, an example of a person who's kind of growing in virtue so we can in and through our work find opportunities just like this of how can i grow as a person how can i grow in good habits that make me more attractive to my fellow co-workers to my spouse to my friends and so forth in and through our work so you can make a whole plan for that now we can also find god in our work how do you find god in your work How is it that you do that and and each of you has to figure out how to do that now i don't think god intended us to basically be sunday catholics where the only time we think about him is when we go to mass on sunday or i don't know once or twice throughout the day i mean that's great if you do that not criticizing that that's fantastic okay that's that's a very that's a good start but if you were dating someone i tell us the college guys like listen If there's that girl that you really are attracted to and you want to win her heart, and you say, you know, I'm just going to talk to you once a week for an hour, it's not going to go very well. You're not going to get very far. You have to have more contact. And so we spend so much time throughout the day working is that we need to find contact points with God throughout the day. It could be little things. So for instance, some people carry a little pocket crucifix with them. You might take that out from time to time. Or you might have little reminders that remind you to say certain things to God throughout the day. You know, I, I remember, I mean, this is dating me, okay? So I remember talking to a friend of mine, and he's like, yeah, I just, I recently got a new computer at work. Like, okay, he's like, well, what kind of computer is it? You know, I'm a nerd, I'm an engineer, so I ask these kind of questions. And he goes, oh, it's a, it's a 3 memory computer. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that sounds really silly to me. He's like, well, no, my old computer to boot up, it took four memoraries. I could, as it's booting up and I'm waiting for it, I would try to pray memoraries as it's booting up. And then eventually it's booted up and I would start working. You know, the new one's a little faster. I can do it in three memoraries. And I mean, he was basically trying to teach me a lesson about little ways you can find God throughout the day. I mean, do you have to do that? No, but every time you answer an email, you could say a little short prayer to God. You know, every time... You see that person who you find a little bit more difficult to be around, so it takes a little bit more willpower to be cheerful and so on. You can offer that up. You know, think of Christ on the cross and I'm offering up this little sacrifice. But it's basically, you've got to make a plan of attack just like the exercise routine. You've got to think about how day to day I can find these points of contact with God throughout the day. And... So i already said, you'll be happier if you see your work as service. Ultimately, if you see that I'm doing my work for God, it takes on a lot more meaning. Let me explain this a little bit. I have a very good friend named Rich. And, uh, and Rich, in his first two or three jobs, was absolutely miserable. Like, not, no job ever worked for him. You know, this, I, I'm good friends with Rich. I would tell this to his face and so forth. I probably have. I don't remember. But eventually, Rich got married. And he has a beautiful family, he's got five kids now. And Rich is much happier in his work, even though the extrinsics, like the job circumstances are not necessarily that much better, he's happier. And it's in part because he realizes, you know, my work is not just about fulfilling me, I'm doing it for my family, to support my family, which is a really important thing to do. Okay, so that is a very beautiful way to look at your work and see it as service. But if you want to go like beyond that, you go to beyond and say, well, gee, I'm going to try to offer up my work to God and make it in a way that's pleasing to God. What has Christ sacrificed for us? Everything. He gave us life on the cross. He suffered this terrible death for us and so on. But in my work, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be things I don't like doing. And I can see my work as a service to God. He gave me these talents. I want to use my talents for God and do it in a way that he's happy with me. And when you do that, it takes on a lot more meaning. It's not hard to do. An example I like to use is, let's, let's say that, I don't know, we're li- leaving the event tonight, and as we're walking away, we notice there's still a beer bottle laying on the side of the road, on the sidewalk. Okay, well, we could do a number of things. We could just walk by and say, I don't have time for that. Maybe it's got germs on it, I'm not gonna touch it. All right? You might say, oh, well, that's, you know, someone might step on this and break it and, you know, I don't know, get a cut on their foot. So I'm going to kick it out of the way. It's probably a good thing to do. Or I might say, well, you know, I'll pick it up and I'll throw it away or I'll pick it up, you know, I'll recycle. That's good for the earth. You know, those are all good things to do. But if you pick it up, throw it in the recycling bin or garbage or whatever, and say a short prayer, God, I offer up doing this to you, you've taken an ordinary, everyday activity, something very, very mundane, and it has now become an eternal prayer, a prayer that God will remember for all eternity. And it just took a little bit of intentionality, a little bit of, I'm remembering you, God, in doing this, and I'm offering it to you. And when we find that in our work, you can find jobs that take on a lot, you know, your your job will take on a lot more meaning. It doesn't have to be something that's this extrinsically great thing. I'm doing my my work out of love for God. Now, the last big point here, and I'm wrapping up, is to sanctify others through our profession. In other words, we're all called to bring people closer to God. That's 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 the apostolic mission that Christ gave to all of us. All of us who are baptized are in some way try, are supposed to try to bring people closer to God. And for most of us, That should happen in a very normal way. And probably very few call to missionary work or to get up on a soapbox somewhere and preach. But you know, you can have a huge impact on people by the little things that you talk about, building friendships and so forth. And your work venue will probably be a big place in which you're gonna meet people. And how are you gonna think of that? How are you gonna do that? Are you gonna be concerned about their souls? Or are they just gonna be the people I work with? doesn't mean you necessarily have to be best friends with them but i encourage you to think about how can i be better friends with them and and try to draw them closer to god okay you know you might say to yourself well you know i can't do this it's terrible so i'm gonna tell you a story about my friend bob i started working with bob about 15 years ago and uh he lives in india now i don't see him that often but we stay in touch and bob is one of these guys who makes fun of absolutely everything one of the guys we were working with was kind of a, I don't know, how would you say it? Outwardly manifested his faith, and Bob teased him mercilessly. I mean, not in a mean-spirited way, but just, you know, anything he could tease you on, he would. Now, I knew when he found out that I was a very dedicated Catholic, I went to Mass every day and so forth, he probably started teasing me. So I made a plan, you know, and I, I liked Bob. He was fun, and he worked hard and so on, you know, so I respected that. So we worked together for about two months, and I did my best to just, you know, try to work as best as I could. And I said, hey, Bob, I want to talk to you about something today. Can I buy you lunch? And Bob's like, okay, fine, whatever. So we went out and had lunch, and I, you know, I said, I know I've noticed this about you. You know, you like to tease people, and I love it. I think it's fun. Feel free to tease me and everything. But I also noticed, you know, teasing this guy and so on about his faith. And I wanted to share with you, I'm very serious about my faith. And you're welcome to tease me about it. In other words, I'm not calling him out, so, but i wanted to share it with you because i respect you but before i kind of shared this with you i wanted you to see me first as a professional see me that i'm trying to work hard and trying to learn from you trying to do a good job of this and so on and so you can see this is all part of the package here you know and, and we became closer friends through that it's not like you had this major conversion but i can tell you about five years later we were at a bar one night talking and i mentioned something in passing and he opened up about a very deep conversion experience in his life. And if, I, if, you know, if we hadn't had that first conversation, this never would have happened. Okay, I'm not trying to say I'm, I'm particularly good at this. I'm probably actually quite bad at it. The point is, you can be better. You can think about how can I befriend the people I work with. It doesn't take enormous things. You know, often it's just remembering getting to know them a little bit. Like who's in their family? How many kids do they have? What's coming up in their life? What's important to them? What do they do on the weekends? You I know, mean, sometimes doing a little extra thing. You know, as I told Michael I was gonna embarrass him a little bit because, you know, Michael is the youngest guy in where he works, right? So if the power goes out, I always blame him. He works for the electrical utility here in town. And um, you went to a jazz concert in uh, New Carlisle because one of the guys you work with was playing in his jazz band. How did this guy, did he appreciate that? He said made his week. Made his week. Something as simple as, well, I'll go with some friends, we're going to go listen to jazz music. It's not a big deal, but you do it for a friend of theirs, it's a, it makes a big impact. Another example a good friend of mine, Dave, he came and spent a semester on sabbatical at Notre Dame in a program. There's about 15 people in the program. He told them, everyone in the program, I want to have lunch with each of you one on one at least once while we're here, so one on one I can get to know you a little bit. It was a great thing to do at the beginning of this like kind of new program each person started looking forward to it. oh i'm going to have lunch with dave this week i get it's my turn to have lunch with dave i mean dave's a very outgoing guy and a fun guy to be with and i, I recommend this to all my students when you start going to an internship or working tell everyone you work with i want to have lunch with each one of you one-on-one and get to know you a little bit i think it just would be a good thing to do you know it's professionally it's a very good thing to do but from the point of view of postulate, it's a fantastic thing to do Because you're showing, basically, I care about you as a person, not just as a worker. And ultimately, if you bring this spirit of service with you, you're going to have a huge impact on their lives. All right. Now, before we end, one little point I want to make, because this is one of the discussion questions here, is that I know a lot of people are unhappy in their work, and they complain about it. And they complain, oh, I have a boss who's terrible, my workplace sucks, I don't know, whatever it is. Anything they can complain about, they complain about bottom line is that most of those factors are under their control you know you can either bring an attitude of I'm gonna be upset and hate what I do or I'm gonna make the best of it you get to choose and if you want to be miserable and be miserable around with okay fine I don't want to hang out with you I'd much rather hang out with someone who's cheerful and joking and fun and hopefully I'm that person as well and not the miserable down drab whatever kind of person so I really recommend if you are in that situation or if you know people in that situation really ask the question to yourself what factors are really under my control here my attitude and what what ones are really not i mean maybe you do have a boss who's a jerk it happens and i'm sorry if that's your situation but maybe you can really separate the things that really are out of your control and under your control and make the best of it and do it in a way that's pleasing to god you know christ in doing his work and dying for us on the cross He had to deal with, you know, someone who was pretty mean to him. So we can find ways of even using something as bad as a terrible boss to draw us closer to God in the way we do that. All right. And that leads us to the last point, and then I'll review. And that is something in your discussion as well. Christ himself, when he came to earth here, he lived with us for about 33 years. How old was he when he started his public ministry? Anyone know off the top of their heads? About 30. Okay. How old was he when he probably started working? Guessing 15-ish. Don't know exactly. So sometime between the ages of 15 and 30, he was just a carpenter, craftsman. And at some point in there, we don't know exactly when St. Joseph died, so presumably he was supporting Our Lady. You know, supporting his mother through his work. So why is it that God spent 15 years of his life, a vast majority of his life compared to the three years of the miracles and public ministry following a very ordinary day-to-day life of a carpenter in Nazareth? We don't have a record of it. We don't have anything he ever built. Okay? We, don't, we don't know. Maybe he was a, I mean, we don't know. But it's a really interesting question to ask and I, in a, in the way St. Marie would answer that is to show us that this is the normal way to live and that living very ordinary, normal professions are ways in which we can find God. If it was good enough for God himself to do, it should be good enough for us. So to sum up, when we see our work as a way of serving and stop, th- stop thinking about ourselves and looking for how to serve others in and through our work, we're going to find much more job satisfaction, be much happier there when we're focused on serving others, we're going to be more pleasant to be around and so on, okay? And if we really want to follow what St. Josemaria was saying is that we can raise our profession to something pleasing to God, we can use it as a means of growing closer to God in and through our daily work, and we can use it as a means of drawing others to God. And I guarantee you that if you work on these things, you'll be happier in your job and in your workplace.
2: Hi, I just have a really quick question. And forgive me, I have to use my phone because I have to type it out because I'm awkward like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know you talked a lot about people who are not in direct service occupations and helping them shift their way of thinking to be more service-oriented, and that's wonderful. Um, But some people who are in direct service occupations feel a lot of stress and burnout from constantly spending anywhere from like eight to to 14 or maybe even 16 hours um, at work serving others. And I was just wondering um, what advice do you give to those people who are in those direct service occupations who are constantly serving people all day who may not be able to like offer their service up to God just because like the burnout is constant and it can be really exhausting. And you know, I work for Steve, so asking for a friend, not, not myself.
1: Sure, I understand. <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic question. Uh, and so, what I would say first, first is Pope Francis speaks about this a lot. He has a lot of outreach to those doing missionary work and you know, the, the type of work that you're doing where you are and, and so on. And that, what I'm going to say first before answering what Pope Francis would kind of say is just let's take this to a different profession first of all. Let's say that someone happened to be, I don't know, a a music star, a songwriter and performer and so on. person gets famous, and then if that person, if she doesn't do whatever it is she needs to do to keep the inspiration flowing, to keep writing new songs, it's going to kind of burn out. In other words, whatever that person needs to do to continue getting inspired to write this beautiful music and so on, She needs to take care of that part of it. It's really essential. So for those who are involved in direct service, first of all, it's a very noble thing to do. But it's not like everyone we serve is gonna be like super happy for us all the time. In fact, it's usually the exact opposite, right? You're giving yourself and you're suffering and doing everything you can, and maybe they're not all that thankful at first. So you have to do what is necessary to, to remind you why you're doing it, which for those involved in direct service usually is a relationship with God. So if I think of who is the icon of service of my generation and probably still of our generation now, is Mother Teresa. You know, she, I mean, everyone, everyone loved Mother Teresa. You know, this tiny little nun in India doing this work with the poorest of the poor. But if you go, if you were to spend time with her, What she would teach her nuns, and I I got to meet some of her nuns when I was doing a service project in Cuba, and they were very cute about it, but it was prayer. Like we, We serve the poor, but first we pray. And so I think there's a certain level of I've got to do those things to keep my spiritual life going so I have the spiritual fuel to deal with the burnout and deal with these things and so on. Sometimes it means I can't do as much as I think, but I got to, I got to put those first things first or else in the end I'm losing that inspiration and, you know, kind of can get turned off by that. So I think those who are involved in such difficult jobs, you really do need a regular prayer life. It's really important. I mean, everyone does, but especially, and thank you for your work. So great job. So we were talking
0: about um, how one's job uh, can affect one's identity and how, Letting yourself be defined by your work can be both a good and a bad thing. I was just wondering what, what thoughts you had on how one's work can or should uh, influence one's self-image.
1: Another great question. By the way, professor-speak, when you say a great question, it means because the professor's thought about this and hasn't answered. If they say it's an interesting question is they hadn't thought about it, but they wish they had. So just just decoding professors a little bit here. Um, the, the, the question you asked, how many, how many here are Notre Dame students or alum or alumni in some way? Okay. Any, how many of you are engineers of, of those? Okay. Yeah. I, I don't want to direct it just to that, but my, the way I'm going to answer that is with the story about Notre Dame students, which is obviously who I spend most of my time with in teaching. And that is, a lot of these students come in, you know, and obviously they're very talented people from all over the country, been top dogs at their schools and so forth, and then we bring them into engineering and we beat them up a little bit, and maybe some of them a lot. And for the first time, I mean, I, my sophomore class, you, know, you can ask Ryan here if you felt the same way, for some people it's the first time that they're trying their hardest and they're not getting the grade they want. And of course they have high standards, so they're like, got a B, it was a terrible grade, and you're like, oh man, you know, I kind of want to kill him a little bit, like have some perspective in life, right, but I think a lot of those students have a difficult time transitioning because they have wrongly identified themselves as, as they say themselves, I'm the smart kid, I was the smart kid in high school, and now at Notre Dame, I'm the dumb kid because I don't get the grade, you know, this other person gets better grades than me, I'm the dumb kid And so that's, I think, a bad identification of yourself with your profession, like, oh, I'm good because I'm a doctor, or I'm a this, or I'm a that. And what I try to teach the students who are suffering from this a little bit is that, well, first of all, in the the professional world, what they're looking for is not whether or not you can do well on exams. They're looking for what kind of work habits do you have? Do you know how to work hard? Are you innovative? Do you work well with other people? Do you communicate well? In other words, are you developing these good skills and habits? They're looking more for the way that you work rather than the nature of the work itself. So my advice to you in that, and trying to help build the proper way of identifying is, you should take pride in the way you work. You know, let's say you are, I don't know, pick whatever profession it happens to be. You know, am, am I trying to be good at what I'm doing? Am I trying to do it the best I can? Yes, then I identify myself. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good this. I'm trying to do it well. Rather than just, it's kind of like a status symbol. And if that status symbol goes away, I'm crushed. Because even if that status symbol goes away, you lose your job or change professions, you still have all of that virtue and good habit. I'm a good worker. I'm good at what I do. So that's the way I would answer that question.
0: How do you remain open to the mystery of God in the most ordinary circumstances of life?
1: Wow, that's a whole talk in and of itself. It's a beautiful question. Um, and I, I think one thing is, the way that St. Josemaria would describe it is that we should think of, well, first of all, as God is a person, we have to have a relationship with God. Being holy means having a close relationship, loving God, as as Christ himself tells us to do, with all our heart, soul, strength, mind, and so on, loving our neighbor as ourself. To do that, we have to have time where we give to God every day, where we're just focused on God, you know, prayer life. And there are many beautiful different types of prayer in the church, you know, from the sacramental prayer life to, you know, the rosary, to different devotions and so forth. It's not a matter of lumping them all together. But I highly recommend everyone's got to have some time every day that you protect and you give to God. And so if you're, if you're building that friendship with God outside of your work, then it's like you have a conversation with God, and then as you start your work, you kind of keep that conversation going. And you need little ways of keeping presence of God, talking to him throughout the day. You know, it's hard to do that if you don't have a prayer life outside of work, And also, if you're in your work trying to find God and through your daily work and keeping that conversation open and so forth, you'll find it's easier to pray to God later in the day. But also, the benefit to that is that if you have this relationship with God and you're trying to keep that presence of God throughout the day, you tend to notice him more in the ordinary things of life. I mean, you tend to notice when a little good thing happens, you prayed for something to happen and it did. And you can thank God for that. Or you can say a little contradiction happened, and you can thank God for that too. Hey, it's, you're sending me the cross, and I recognize that. Thank you for that. But without kind of that prayer life outside, I think it's very hard to be open to God throughout the day in the ordinary circumstances of life. Uh, some people like to develop devotion, say to their guardian angel, and 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 ask that guardian angel to help them keep you know presence of God throughout the day and be open to God throughout the day and whatever it is that God sends me throughout the day is kind of a beautiful thing. So there's just some little ideas there. I'm sure you would have some to suggest, and please feel free to suggest some to the rest of the group here if you have some thoughts.
0: Uh, so I guess my question is, surrounding sort of the vocation of a student, someone who's like before they've reached kind of a professional vocation, is there, is there a way then that you can find this sort of, I guess, maybe to call it sacred curiosity, where it comes from like that, that element of exploring like what it is that I'm going to do eventually. Do you, can you speak a bit more about maybe that stage of this process and where, where, that, where that can be turned into something that is, that is usable for
1: God? Sure, I think that's, that's uh, obviously another great, everyone's asking great questions here. Um, it's important for, I think everyone, the role of mentoring is enormously important And, you know, I know, for instance, when I was going to school and I, you know, everyone told me you should be an engineer. And I'm like, why? Because you're good at math and science. And I'm like, well, what does an engineer do? And they would be like, it's too hard to answer. They do everything. And now I give that same answer and I laugh because I'm like, well, there's so many things you, you can do. But one of the absolute best things that you can do is you can talk to people who are working in their professions. What is your profession like? And so, for instance, one of my story times in uh, my engineering classes is before Christmas break, I recommend students try to make appointments with professionals, and people practicing their professions, and ask them, well, what is your day-to-day life like? What do you do day in and day out? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? What would you have done differently? What advice do you have for a college student and so forth? The more people you can talk to about what they actually do, the more you'll say, well, gosh, that sounds interesting to me. Oh, well, man, that definitely doesn't sound interesting to me. Um, and, and you can kind of see the things that are possible as well. So I think that's, that's one aspect of that mentoring and learning what's out there. But that's also true in finding, like, a religious vocation, is that we need to be open to asking, well, what, what is it that when God calls in a special way, how is he doing that? Am I open to that? And so on. That discernment process, the religious go through in, in discerning their vocation, should be a little bit similar to our professional vocation. And it should be the same process you go through to some degree if you're if you're thinking of getting married. Um, is God calling me to marriage? Is he calling me to marry this person and so forth? What do you do in those cases? You talk to the people who know you best and hopefully get good advice. You know, and, and, and not just, oh, I think this is the best person for me, but to ask your close friends and family members, what do you think? Is is this person a good match for me? You know, like, am I happier when she's around? I remember I was telling this to a friend of mine. He's like, oh, that happened to me. You know, I remember I talked to one of my best friends, just, and, you know, after I got rid of this girlfriend, he's like, oh, I'm so glad you did. you were always miserable around here. He's like, I didn't even notice. You know, you need, need to get that advice. So kind of an, kind of an answer to this, both in your professional work and these other areas, get mentorship, get, get people, you know, get talk to other people about what they do. And you'll probably find that is a way of opening yourself up to learning from God how you could use your talents or how he wants you to use your talents. So
3: um, I'm a first-year graduate student at Notre Dame. And this past year, as I was getting ready for graduation from undergrad, I was thinking a lot about vocations, and I still am. Um, And I think as I was discerning my career vocation, I kept thinking, like, what does God want me to do? And I wasn't realizing that little v vocation, as my friends call it, is different than big v vocation, and that God had these doors open for me, and he said, you could just pick one. Like, they're all good doors. So I was wondering, how would you um, differentiate between little v vocation and big v vocation?
1: Sure. the way I like to look at vocation is that vocation is God's plan for us. And, and if, if we, I'm an engineer, so sorry, there's a bit of an you know, engineering explanation of it. If we follow God's plan perfectly for us, we're happiness. We optimize our happiness function. Okay? So that's one, one kind of way of looking at it. But if we don't go fully on script with God, it's not like we're going to be miserable. We can still be very happy. He's very generous in this regard. You know, so if a person chose to do something and it really God had wanted to do something else and they didn't, we're going to still be able to be happy in life. We not, might, might not have been as happy as we could have been had we chosen everything, but it's not like it's a punishment. It's like, okay, this is the, the choice that you've made, right? So I think vocation in general is God's plan for us. Many people are called to a special vocation of dedication to God, but... Who well, they're giving themselves more and, and, you know, maybe say not getting married or more available to go and serve in, in, in different capacity and so on. But I like to think of vocation in terms of three parts. And, and the first part is your professional life calling. You know? So it's not that you're called to just one job or profession. We could probably do many that would be using our talents and we'd find fulfillment in. As you said, God opened several doors and you just had to pick one okay for those in the religious life they're 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 picking a very specific one and i think that's the kind of part of the job part of it a second aspect is family life what is my family life that part of my vocation is god calling me to marriage if so to who which children is he going to send to me and so forth for those in the religious life their family is their community it's a beautiful family life and it's a but it's part of their vocation is living that family life you know and then the third part of the vocation, I think, and, and this is the one where I don't think people talk about enough, is the apostolic nature of your vocation. Who is it that God's going to put in your life, and how are you going to try to draw souls closer to God? So I kind of view it in that way, and when I'm trying to help students and so forth try to discern that a little bit, I try to help them think about those in terms of those big pictures. But something you said, I think, is, is really great, is that you should be asking that question, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And I guarantee you, if you ask that question day in and day out every day of your life, God will show you in the right time. Maybe not in the time you want, maybe not in the way that you want, but he will put the right people in the right places, and he will, you know, as long as you keep that door of communication open to God, he will lead you in the path that he wants you to follow if you're open to that. So I think it's a beautiful thing you're doing.
3: So we touched a little bit on this already, but um, just, I guess, a little more in depth. Um, a lot of us, I think, are in times of transition in our lives. Um, and I found that in times of transition, um, most things in our lives seem to be in flux. So even if we have you know good routines previously um, for, You know, trying to work towards you know living in a spirit of service, um, to reestablish in a new whether it's a new setting with new people, um, any of that, reestablish. I guess yeah, this spirit of service in whether it's in your work or in a new graduate program, whatever it may be. Um, do you have any suggestions in how to really establish um, yeah, that spirit of service in a new place or setting or whatever? It's a,
1: that's a really, it's a really good question because we all go through transitions and you're absolutely right. As soon as a transition happens and you lose kind of the structure of your life, it's really hard to keep everything together. Like, I know a lot of students build up a good daily routine of their prayer life and everything during the semester. And then final exam week happens, and you have so much more time because you don't have class and everything. But everything just drops out. They don't go do their prayer or mass or whatever because it's just harder, I think, in in that sense. So uh, a few things, and you probably have heard this analogy a million times. There's this funny story that I'm sure is just an urban myth that a professor gets up and talks about, you know, graduate school, or fill-in-the-blank, whatever venue you want. And he brings up this big bucket, it's a clear bucket, kind of, you know, polyethylene, clear, clear uh, plastic. And he fills it with these big rocks, and he asks the question, is this full? And everyone looks around and says, yeah, it's full. And then he proceeds to pull out from the podium a bag of gravel. And he dumps in a whole bunch of gravel and he's like, I thought you said it was full. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Okay, so, so is it full now? They say yes. And of course, then he pulls out a bag of sand. And he proceeds to pull in a whole bunch of sand. Okay, and is it full now? Yes. Okay, and then he, he pulls out some water and fills it, you know, mostly with the water. And he said, what's the lesson? and, And the lesson, you know, I've heard this story told in like 10 different ways, so you can kind of construe it however you want to. But what he's saying is, you know, if I had put in the water first or the sand first, I couldn't have put in the big rocks. So in your life, you've got to put in the big rocks first. What are those things that you want to be the anchors of your life? As you say, it could be the spirit of service. It could be your daily prayer routine. It could be... I need to be involved with people somehow so when you transition somewhere what are the things that are most important to you and make those the priority you can't do all of those things at once until it takes time to build friendships it takes time to meet people it takes time to figure out how you fit in and so on to not get discouraged and keep doing those things to put in the big rocks first and i would say you know a lot of people get frustrated if it doesn't go at the pace they want or are frustrated themselves if they don't do what they they you know they don't stay true to the big rock so to speak you know a big thing in the spiritual life is starting over so you screw up one day fine start over you know the worst thing you could do is to just give up and keep keep doing it and to kind of end that little story the best way i've ever heard it told is there's there's actually a corollary to this because after they've had all of this discussion the professor pulls out a beer and pours it in. And he says, the corollary is, and you always have time for a beer in life. So I particularly like that, and I think it's fitting for this venue here. But thank you. It's it's been a real pleasure. And if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me, call me, email me, come talk to me now. Thank you very much.